Well, as always, church, it's good to be with you. If you have a Bible, go and open up to Ephesians chapter 6. To Ephesians chapter 6. Thanks so much for being here. If you're new or visiting, especially for um, braving all the rain and the turnaround, don't drown stuff. Thank you for being here. Um, Thank you for not drowning. Um, We're going to be in Ephesians chapter 6. And at the end of Ephesians, Paul is getting to this part of his letter where he's talking to us about spiritual warfare. We've been going through Ephesians for a long time, but we're in Ephesians 6, and as Paul is closing this incredible letter to the Ephesian church, he ends by talking to us about spiritual warfare. And so in this mini-series within Ephesians 6, we've learned a lot about this war that every Christian is in. The first week we learned about who our enemy is, that this supernatural being named Satan, this fallen angel and his demonic forces, are out to deceive the world. They're out to deceive you into listening to your desires that tell you to rebel against God, not trust him, not follow him. That all of this spiritual warfare is not against one another, but against Satan and his forces. And then the second week, last week, we learned about this armor we've been given. That though there's a war going on, God has given every Christian this spiritual armor, the armor of Jesus Christ himself. That through Christ you have power to stand against every attack, every assault of the enemy. So last week we looked at the first piece of armor, which is the belt of truth, because everything hangs on the truth of God's word. And then this week, we're looking at the second piece of armor listed, and it's the breastplate of righteousness. So go and look with me in Ephesians 6, 10 through 14. 10 through 14, this is the word of God. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, having done all to stand firm. Verse 14, stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. So Paul says, Christian, after you've put on the belt of truth, now you are to put on the breastplate of righteousness. And so I'm going to get into this term righteousness. Our whole time is going to be about that term righteousness. But before I do that, I want to take some time to kind of give you um, the meaning and the importance of the breastplate in the gear of a soldier back in those days. Because I think when you understand what the breastplate did for a a soldier, you'll understand why Paul sees that and says, oh, that's like the righteousness of Christians. So a breastplate basically in those days covered from your neck to your abdomen, okay? It covered your most vital organs. And so when you're going into battle, okay, you don't want to get hurt, obviously. You'd rather not be wounded. But if you're going to be wounded, you'd rather be wounded in an extremity than in this part of your body. Why? Because you can more easily survive a wound to your arm as opposed to your stomach or your chest. And so in the worst case scenario, you could even survive without an arm, but you can't survive without a heart, So what a breastplate did for a soldier was it protected the most vulnerable pieces of their body. It protected the most vulnerable parts of their body. So the things that are most essential to them being alive, the breastplate protected. And so Paul sees that on a soldier. He's probably in prison when he's writing this letter. So he sees these Roman guards. He says, that is what righteousness does for the believer. He sees that breastplate and he says, oh, that is our righteousness. It protects the most vulnerable and vital parts of your life from attack. And so this term righteousness is really important we understand it, and I think for most of us the term righteousness is a confusing one. 
It's a confusing one. It's not a term that we use a lot. And when we use it probably in this context, and maybe at church or in a missional community or you're reading the Bible, often it's one of those words that you may be familiar with and you nod your head along to, but you don't really know how to define it. Like if I ask you, hey, define righteousness, you're like, um, righteousness. I don't know. I have no idea what it means. It's one of those words you have a hard time defining without using the word and the definition, right? But also, too, on top of that, anytime we do use the term righteousness, it's usually not in a positive context. You and I use the term righteous typically with a negative connotation. The main way you and I use the term righteous is self-righteous. All of us have probably said that person is self-righteous. What we mean by that is they're condescending, they're prideful, they're arrogant, they point out everyone else's flaws, not their own. And so the only way we know this, it's a confusing term, it's a negative term in our minds, we need the Bible to redefine it for us because in the scriptures the term righteousness is a rich one. It's deep and it's used all over the Bible in all sorts of contexts. I would be willing to say that if you don't understand the term righteousness, you won't understand the Bible. It's all over the Bible, Old Testament, New Testament. It's everywhere. So if you're going to understand what God has to say to the world through the word of God, you have to understand this term righteousness. And so one of the most basic definitions of this term, the most basic definition is the term straightness. What it means is as opposed to being crooked. What, the te- what, what righteousness means is that something is up to inspection. That it meets expectations. That it meets the norms expected for you to be acceptable. And when it talks about righteousness, it's not just in like this third party, this abstract test that you're meeting expectations or meeting the requirements. No, it's primarily relational. When you read the Bible, righteousness is a term used primarily in the context of relationships. See, the idea is that you are meeting the expectations in a relationship, meeting the parameters in a relationship, so much so that the other person finds you pleasing or acceptable. That's what righteousness means. And that's why all of us in this room, whether you're Christian or not, every single one of us is searching for righteousness. Every single one of us is searching to be found without lacking anything with the people we love most. All of you want to be accepted and loved and valuable to those you trust and admire most. All of us do. It's it's deep set within you to want to have righteousness. And so you go to other people and you want to not lack anything in their sight. None of us want to be in a relationship filled with shame or a friendship where we always don't meet the mark with them, they're always disappointed in us. No, we want these people, not everybody, but those those select people, you want to know that you're accepted to them. You wanna know that. And that's why you and I so often hide flaws and insecurities and sins from each other, especially with those people you love most. You hide those flaws, you hide those insecurities that you know if you confess, it will violate the terms of that relationship. It will make you lack righteousness before them. That if you tell them what you did or what you thought or what you felt, then all of a sudden something in that relationship would be broken. Why? Because every relationship has parameters and expectations. And when you fail to meet them, you fail to possess righteousness before them. And so when you and I lack righteousness in any given relationship, especially ones you cherish, when you've done something to disappoint them, it plagues you, doesn't it? When that happens, when you do something and you see the look in their eyes, you know you let them down, you know you hurt them, it's hard not to walk around all day with that nagging sense of inadequacy. Because it defines how you see the world, it defines all of your emotions. You keep thinking about the fact this person that you respect and love 
does not want you in their presence. You're not acceptable to them. They'd rather not have you around. And when you think about it that way, you're going to see we're all lacking it. We all want it. I think a helpful illustration um, to think about and understand this term lacking righteousness, the way you feel when you lack righteousness with a person is kind of the way you feel when you're dramatically underdressed at an event or a party. It's a similar feeling and a similar dynamic when you walk into a room and you realize, I read the invitation wrong. Um, I am not a person, I'm not a man who has a keen fashion sense. I never have been. I've tried to be cool, can't do it. Tried plenty of times. And I, there's people that I know that just have this keen fashion sense that no matter what they wear, it's awesome. So like, like, like Aaron Ivey is one of those guys. He could wear a do-rag and it would become cool again. You see hipsters everywhere wearing do-rags, like, yeah, it's cool now. If I wore a do-rag, you think, why is that gross, sweaty guy wearing a do-rag? That's what you would think. And I tell you that because I've tried, it's just not, not my thing. It's not that fashion's wrong, I just, it's not my thing. And so I tell you that because most of the time, I'm not thinking about what I'm wearing relative to what someone else is wearing. I don't think about it. Because if I thought about it, I'd probably feel insecure about myself. So I don't think about it. It's not a big deal to me, okay? Now, I tell you that because I don't think about it a lot, but there was one time in particular where I was so underdressed, I couldn't think about anything else. Like, I was so uncomfortable. My, my dad is a police officer um, in Dallas, and he's actually nominated about a year and a half ago for uh, the cop of the year in Dallas. So a pretty big deal, pretty special occasion. So my mom tells me, Tyler, dress nice. So I'm like, okay, that basically means what I'm wearing with not tennis shoes. Like that's basically, in my mind, to not wear tennis shoes is amazing. Like, that's really nice. And so I'm thinking, and I'm from Austin. Like, we don't really dress super nice, but we're going to Dallas, remember? Okay? They may just kick me out. Okay? I get there, and I'm, no lie, wearing this. Something like this. Basically, all my clothes are basically like this. I'm wearing this, but brown shoes. Okay? Brown shoes that are really old. And I'm wearing it, and I show up, and no lie, black tie affair. Black tie. Every dude's wearing a tux. Every woman's wearing a ball gown, and I want to hide behind trees. I'm like, oh, don't see me. Like, hey, what's the big guy doing? Um, I'm hiding. Sorry, I feel uncomfortable. Like, I just felt nonstop. It was clear to me I am not acceptable here. People are looking at me wanting, if they could, shun me if that was still a thing right? That's what they want to do because it's clear I'm underdressed. It's clear I haven't met the expectations of the event. Now, every human being's experience now with God is similar to that. Every human being get now gets around God and it's clear you're underdressed. It's clear that you can't stand before him. It's clear that whatever's needed to be before him, you for sure are lacking. That's why we run from him so much. Because we get around him and it's obvious, uh-oh, I'm not acceptable. I'm not pleasing. That's every human being's experience because God had, God had set these parameters, these terms of our relationship where it was, God said, I'll be your protector, I'll be your provider, I'll be your greatest love. And we said, no, I'll be my protector, I'll be my provider, and I'll love other things. So when we broke away from that, we no longer have righteousness. We no longer meet his expectations. We're no longer acceptable and pleasing to him. We're underdressed. We're underdressed. And so God sends Jesus to give us that righteousness. Now, it's important to know, I think most of us have the concept that Jesus came to die for sin. That's true and biblical and right and good. But he also came to give you a righteousness that you lacked before God. 
Not only did he come to take away sin, but he came to give you righteousness. He came to give you all that you lacked in the presence of God. And this righteousness wasn't a general one. It wasn't just a general righteousness. No, it was actually that Jesus lived a life that was always pleasing and always acceptable to God. Jesus' life made God the Father so happy that he raised him from the dead. See, his life was so righteous, so pleasing that when Jesus died, you know what God said? Not even death will hold you down. Because he was that happy with his life, that pleased with his life. He loved Jesus that much that he raised him from the dead on the third day. The resurrection speaks to how pleasing Jesus was to God. That's why he did it. And so Jesus lived that life not because he lacked a relationship with God, but because you did and I did. He didn't live a life of righteousness righteousness because he didn't know God. He lived it because you didn't know God. And he knew you could never come back to the one you were made for, the one you deep down didn't even realize you were striving to get righteousness from. He knew you couldn't know God unless he gave you an actual, historical, tangible righteousness. He didn't just give it to you in theory. He gave you an actual life to look at. See, Jesus made this clear at his baptism. At his baptism, uh, John was baptizing people as a sign of repentance to get people ready to, see, to know Jesus. And Jesus walks up to John the Baptist and says, hey man, you, you need to baptize me. Well, John knows who Jesus is. He says, no, man, you're the son of God. You should baptize me. And Jesus, Jesus tells him, you don't understand. I'm, not, I'm doing it because I need to fulfill all righteousness. Look at Matthew 3. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. Why did Jesus get baptized according to that text? To fulfill all righteousness. He's working for you a life that you need to know God. Every command, every norm, Every standard that God sets forth for his people to fulfill, Jesus fulfills perfectly, perfectly. See, for anyone to know a whole, this holy God, for anyone to know him intimately, he has, just the same way you have, relational expectations. Anyone that you're close to, anyone, you have certain parameters and understandings about what that relationship means. Like you wouldn't share intimate information with somebody who you didn't trust, Right? The relational expectation in those intimate relationships is what? That if I'm going to tell you this information, I'm trusting you to to keep it to yourself. Okay, we all have relational expectations. Well, how much more so God? He's infinite, he's holy, he's pure, he's beautiful, he's satisfying. And he says, if you're going to know me, you have to meet all of my relational expectations. All of them. And for us in this room, they are infinitely high because our hearts are so dull towards God. We're so broken that we could never meet his expectations. They're too weighty for us to do. And so Jesus comes and says, I'll meet everyone. So God says, hey, you, you, you want to know me? As your dad, you want to know me as your dad? Here's my expectation. Your sexuality has to be perfectly in step with what I say in my word, both in thought and in deed. Jesus says, I got that. Pure, perfect, every time. God says, you want to know me? Well, then you have to not love money more than me. You can't go to money for your security. 
You can't look at your savings account and say, okay, now I know I'm okay. Or look at your savings account and be anxious because you're, I don't know what's gonna happen to me. You have to trust me more than money. Jesus says, I fulfilled it. The foxes have holes and the birds have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. Jesus trusted God over money. God says, you wanna know me, and you have to love everybody all the time. Jesus says, I loved everybody, even my enemies. And probably the most difficult one of all, God says, if you're going to know me, you have to obey me because you want me, not because you want to manipulate me to get other things. You can't obey me and say, I'll obey you so long as you give me the family I want, the job I want, the health I want, X, Y, Z. God says, you can't obey me because you want me. And Jesus' life screams that he wants the Father more than anything because he obeys him even when it costs him his life. Every relational expectation God has on people to know him, Jesus fulfills. And through that entire time when Jesus is obeying the Father, it says that Satan, Hebrews 4 tells us, that he was tempted in every way that we were, yet was without sin. So Jesus, in his life, works this actual, legitimate, valid righteousness for us. And here's what that righteousness does for God the Father. He is so righteous. He lacks nothing before him. The relationship is perfect with nothing tearing it apart, nothing breaking it. Jesus isn't hiding anything from him. And here's what it does for the Father. He can't keep quiet about his love for his son. The righteousness that Jesus possesses actually in his life with his obedience, what he's earning for us is one where the Father sees it and he can't keep quiet about his love. At the Mount of Transfiguration when Jesus is glorified and the Father speaks, look at how the Father speaks about Jesus. He was still speaking, Jesus was, when behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them and a voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well Pleased, listen to him. God the Father shows up, and there's Jesus and the disciples, and he shows up and starts speaking to the disciples. He says, that's my son who I love. My little boy Henry just turned one. He just turned one. And he is helping me understand this text more. Because when I talk, even right now, I'm thinking about Henry, it makes me happy. I don't have an ounce of disapproval for him. I have nothing but to lie. I don't have to look at my son and go, be happy. Like, it just happens. I'm, I have so much joy in him that even the smallest things that he does brings me delight. He literally this past week took his first steps. And I have never been so excited over such a small accomplishment. You took three wobbly steps. And I'm like, look at him. Every other baby must bow in your greatness. <laughs> and that baby, and that baby, all of you. Like, I just... I find myself wanting to tell everyone, look how great my son is. And the incredible thing about that is Henry's only one. And so eventually he's going to sin and hurt me and disappoint me and we're gonna have that friction happen because of sin in him and in me. But think about Jesus. God's not rejoicing in Jesus because just given enough time, Jesus will eventually let him down. No, Jesus has already proven he will never let the Father down. He will always obey because the Father is his delight. So when the Father begins to speak, what does he say? Disciples, this is not just my son, my beloved son. My beloved son, that picture of me and my son Henry is a very faint 
very faint shadow of the real thing. The real thing of the father delighting in his son. So much so he tells his disciples, the whole world, listen to him. I love him. Listen to him. He can't keep quiet about his love for his son. And the incredible thing is that the righteousness that Jesus possesses that makes the father speak that way about him is what he died to give to you. He died to give that to you. He died to give you the righteousness that makes God the Father well up with joy when he sees you and starts saying things like, that's my beloved son, that's my beloved daughter. Romans 3, one of the most important texts in all the Bible on this. It says, for by the works of the law, no human being will be justified or made righteous in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, apart from what we do, although the law and the prophets of the Old Testament bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. God was working in such a way through Jesus Christ that when you own up to your sin and you receive Jesus as your king, in that moment you are totally and completely righteous. The thing that's been blowing my mind all week is that in that moment, you become as pleasing and as acceptable to God as Jesus himself is. That the way the Father speaks about Jesus is now when you trust him is how he speaks about you. You become the one he cannot keep quiet about his love for. You become the one who has no reason to hide anything because the Father's joy is wrapped up in you. You become the one who is no longer underdressed in your own works that only condemn you before God. You can't buy his love with good deeds. You become the one who's dressed in all the righteousness of Jesus Christ that qualifies you to always enter the celebration and the party of his love. That is what Jesus died to give to all who would believe. Paul says in that text, the law and the prophets the Old Testament, and he's writing the New Testament, that all the Bible is not telling the world, hey, here's how you get back to God. Be really good. Hey, you want to be faithful? Here's how you do it. Here's how you make God love you. It says, the whole Bible is bearing witness to the fact the only righteousness that counts before God is Christ. And that when you trust him, you get everything he earned. You get that life as your life. You get his destiny as your destiny because you're as righteous as Jesus is. And so if you're in this room and you trust Christ right now, whether you feel it or not, 100% righteous is what you are. So you are, no doubt about it. If you're in this room and you don't know Christ and you receive him in that moment, righteous because of Christ. But here is the conundrum of the Christian life is that though you ultimately are righteous and though one day you will see all the manifestations of his righteousness in your life in the new heavens and new earth, we still sin here, don't we? We still live in unrighteous ways here. See, though you're perfectly righteous in Christ, you still will act in unrighteous ways. Unrighteousness will still manifest itself in your life. There's a great text in Hebrews 10 that describes this tension perfectly. For by a single offering... He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Look at that. 
That's exactly who you are if you're in Christ. For by a single offering, not by your offerings, not by your works, but by the single offering of Jesus, what happened to you? He has perfected for all time. You are perfect, lacking nothing before God forever. No matter what you do tomorrow or the next day or what you did yesterday, perfected for all time. But look at that last phrase, those who are being sanctified. So you're perfect and you're being sanctified. So God is using this process of killing sin, this process of fighting temptation, this process of growing in holy, joyful obedience and submission to him to sanctify you. That word means to set apart, to prepare you for something special. And the special thing he's preparing every Christian for is a new heavens, new earth. This life is just getting you ready for the next one. This life is the warm-up lap for the real thing. That's why we're being sanctified. And so in this life, as you're being sanctified and being shown all the ways you're living in sin, each time, Christian, you sin, two people are going to remind you of your sin. Each time you live in a way that betrays the righteousness you've received and you act in a way that's not who you are, two people are going to show you your sin. The Holy Spirit and Satan. The Holy Spirit and Satan are both going to bring your sin to mind. See, the Holy Spirit, when he brings sin up in your life, we call that conviction. We call that conviction. He's bringing up sin in your life because he wants to help you and get you out of it. And when Satan brings up sin in your life, we call that accusation. We call that accusation. Accusation of your sin is Satan's main tactic against you, believer. It's his main tactic against you, believer. He and his demons are constantly prowling around this planet, reminding the saints of God of their sins. Accusing you day and night is what Revelation 12 says. It says, and I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come down for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down. What does he do? Who accuses them day and night before our God. Satan is going to constantly remind you of all the ways you've sinned. You know what he wants? He wants you to wallow in it. He wants you to have guilt in every area of your life. He wants you walking on eggshells thinking God's just ready to kill you. He wants you to start working really hard to make up for those sins. He wants you to start promising God, I'll never do that again, I promise. Just grace one more time. Satan wants you to talk that way. And satanic accusations are some of the most difficult things to deal with in the Christian life because they're true. The most difficult thing to deal with, one of them in the Christian life, is satanic accusations because he's right. See, he may be the father of lies, but he's crafty and he knows what to say and how to say it and he knows how to use real evidence. See, he's right. When he brings up that sin that actually happened, he's right that that disqualifies you from knowing God. He's right that that sin makes you unfit to know this God who loves you. He's right. And that's what makes it confusing is he brings forth the sin and it actually happened and so what you and I tend to do, instead of running to Jesus, you know what we do? We start running to our own works. See, Satan will bring up a sin 
in your mind. You'll feel that shame, that guilt, and start to wallow in it. And we start fighting accusation with what? No, 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 you don't understand. I'm, I am righteous. I've done this. No, 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 I know that's not good in my life. Okay, I'll get really disciplined here. So we start saying things like, no, but I've read my Bible. I, I am righteous. No, no, I've been nice to people. No, I'm faithful in places where everyone else is not being faithful. All my friends are being faithless, but I'm being faithful. I love God. I'm righteous. That's wrong. But you know what happens if you fight accusations with your own supposed works of righteousness? What happens when another accusation comes and you haven't read your Bible? What happens when the accusation comes and you haven't been nice to people and you have failed in ways you thought you never would and you never want to admit? Well, if you're fighting with your own works, accusations keep coming and there's all this evidence in your life that says you're not as faithful as you think. You know what happens when that's your mentality and that's how you fight accusation? You begin to see following Jesus as one that's joyless. If you fight accusation with your own supposed works of righteousness, you're going to be swallowed up by despair. I think there are many who have left the church because they think that what it means to follow God is to always hate yourself. What it means to follow God is to always be in shame, is to always be guilty. And my response would be, it is if you fight with your works. It is if the way you respond to accusation is, no, I've been good enough because there is no strength or power in that because there's too much evidence in your life that says contrary. But there's joy and there's hope and there's strength and there's power not in what you've done but in Christ. Look at how Revelation 12 solves the problem. It says, and I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. And look at how we conquer him. And they have conquered him by reading their Bibles. They've conquered him by being really nice. They have conquered him by the blood of the lamb. You conquer accusations that are right and true by running to the perfect, spotless Christ. You are never loved, nor will you ever be loved because you've been good enough. You are always loved and always accepted and always cherished because Christ was perfect. That's why. Praise God, it's not based on your works because then you'll have either be really prideful or really depressed. But what Christ does, he frees you up to where you can have joy all the time. The reason God looks at you and says, that's my son, that's my daughter, is because Jesus earned that for you. He has all the righteousness that you lacked. His death and his life is stronger than every accusation. See, Satan brings up your sin with no mention of Jesus. That's what he does. He'll bring up your sin all day, but guess who's not coming up? Jesus. The Holy Spirit will bring up your sin. Why? Because he wants to take you to Jesus. The Holy Spirit loves Jesus more than anything. And all he wants to do is show you sin. Why? So you can look to him. See, the Holy Spirit shows you your sin and convicts you and challenges you he challenges you, why? Because God wants to see you. God wants to talk to you. He wants to give you instruction and correction and love and encouragement. Satan says, 
no, here's your sin and that's why God doesn't want to see you. You've been too faithless for him to love you. See, the righteousness of Jesus Christ outlasts and outargues every accusation. Every accusation. You stand against the attack of accusations with Christ's righteousness. That's why Paul says, stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. So I'm going to give you a couple of practical ways you put on the breastplate of righteousness. You put on the breastplate of righteousness as you remember and rehearse these truths we've talked about. As you remember and rehearse where your righteousness comes from. So you put on the breastplate of righteousness when you're faithfully obeying God. One of the amazing things about following Jesus is that he'll actually give you power to obey and you'll actually be able to read your Bible and love it. You'll actually be able to obey what you're reading. You'll see love and joy and peace and repentance and godliness you've never seen before in your life. Praise God for that. But here's what you have to fight for is what happens in those seasons where God gives you success and victory The temptation will be to think the reason I'm obeying in all these new ways is because there's something special about me. You begin to see areas where you're obeying and others aren't and you'll begin to think, well, it's because I really love Jesus and I'm really devoted and they're not. It's in those moments you have to put on the breastplate of righteousness and remember you only have righteous deeds in your life because Jesus gave you his. That you're just plagiarizing all of his stuff. That he's given you everything and you're getting to benefit from it. So when you see spiritual fruit in your life and joy and peace and patience, the credit goes to him, not to you. And here's what's amazing about that. Now, even obedience is an opportunity to worship. Even obedience, you can say, I can't believe I was patient with my kids. I'm never patient with them and I was. It's amazing. And the only reason I was patient is because Jesus gave his righteousness to me. That isn't who I am, that's who Jesus is, and I get to benefit from him and walk in that. You put on the breastplate of righteousness, even when you're in seasons of success, so you're reminded, this is not inherently mine, this has been given to me. You put on the breastplate of righteousness when you're plagued with guilt. There are some of you in here, and I know it, that you cannot believe God can forgive you. Like You, you hear it. You nod your head, but deep down, it's just not clicking. Just can't believe it. You're thinking, no, 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 I've outsinned his grace. Tyler, if you knew what I did, or you knew my thought life, or what I've done, or my past, or whatever, you'd probably tell me that God doesn't love me. If you're there, you need to put on the breastplate and remember who God sees. He doesn't see you anymore. He doesn't look at you and treat you according to your works. He looks to Christ. So he does not look at and treat you based on your perversions. He looks at the the purity of Christ. He doesn't treat you based on your lack of faithfulness. He looks at Christ's constant devotion. He doesn't treat you based on your moral inconsistencies. He treats you based on the steadfast love of Christ. So if you're here and you keep beating yourself up and you think, if I hate myself enough, I'll finally obey, you have to know Jesus already got beat up for that sin. You don't have to. 
He was already murdered for that sin. Everything's already yours. It's not based on your life. Sure, there's evidence all over your life and mine that says we don't deserve his grace. Absolutely. But Jesus' life says different. And that's who you run to. You don't run to how you've been doing. You run to how Christ has been doing. And I'll tell you right now, he's seated at the right hand of God because his work's finished. His work is finished. And lastly, put on the breastplate of righteousness when you're helping others who are struggling with sin. When you're helping others who are struggling with sin. I really hope all of you get the privilege of getting to help a brother or sister in Christ walk through their struggles. I really, I really hope we become a church that this city looks at and says, if I had in, when I feel insecurities and I feel shame and I feel guilt, I want to talk to them about it. I want to go to this church and these people and say, how do you process through these things? Because we have a Jesus, they don't. But when people come to you and they share some intimate information, you get the honor and the privilege to walk alongside of them in that. Make sure you sound more like the Holy Spirit than Satan. Make sure that your counsel sounds more like the Holy Spirit than the enemy. Because if all you say to people who are struggling in sin is how bad they are, how much they need to change, and here are the steps forward, and you don't talk about Jesus, you sound much more like the enemy than the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit brings up sin. Why? So he can take you to Jesus. When people come to you with struggles, put on the breastplate of righteousness. And yes, talk to how terrible sin is, how grievous it is, how heinous it is. But end on Jesus. Sin does not have the final word. Christ does. So don't end there. You don't need to lord how bad it is over them and rub their noses in it to make sure they get it. You can't force that. You need to talk about sin, but always end on Christ. He's the hope for every single one of us. And here's what's crazy about this righteousness. When you get God's free, unwarranted, unmerited by our works, righteousness of Christ, it makes you want to obey. It makes you want to be righteous. It's a strange power that when you see, I got everything, I'm already pleasing to God, it makes you want to pray. It makes you want to kill sin. It makes you want to evangelize. Not so you can become righteous, but because you already are righteous. A famous Puritan preacher named John Bunyan was in prison in the 1600s. And he was in prison for preaching this gospel of grace, this gospel of free righteousness. And as he was there, as he was there, there were other Christians in prison with him. And the other Christians were critiquing his preaching and saying, if you keep telling people that God's already given them everything, they'll never obey. And Bunyan had read his Bible, and he knew this gospel, and he knew, no, when you see how great God is, you'll want to obey. Read you this quote from his letters in prison. They told him, you can't go on telling people that Christ's righteousness has been credited credited to them in full. If they believe that, they'll feel like they can do whatever they want. Bunyan replied, if people really see that Christ's righteousness has been given to them entirely as a gift, they'll do whatever he wants. That's how righteousness works. When you see you've received it in full, all of a sudden it produces this strange desire to want to walk in it as well. And that's how we stand against every accusation of the enemy. Let's pray together.
Father, thank you for the gift that we didn't just get part of the righteousness that we needed, that Jesus didn't just give us a little bit of what we needed and made us work for the rest, but God, in Christ, you've given us everything we need. You've given us everything needed to be before you and always be pleasing and always be acceptable and always be lovely to you. So God, I wanna pray for those in here plagued with guilt who keep thinking about sin, keep making promises to you. God, would you set us free from those lies? God, set us free that somehow we could do enough to make you love us. God, set us free that Christ has given everything. We can worship and sing to you and obey you without any doubt that you're for us. God, I wanna pray for those in here who feel distant from you and apathetic towards you, who aren't moved by you. God, would you do what only you can and make Jesus look as great as he actually is to us? God, I wanna pray for those who are seasons of health and maturity. God, would you keep us humble to not not credit any of the good works in us to ourselves? But God, we would do the beautiful work of taking those works back to their source, Jesus and Jesus alone. God, that's why he's the center. That's why he's the center of all things. That's why everything's about him because he's the only one who's inherently, by his own works, righteous forever. And God, thank you that we get to inherit everything his righteousness deserves. God, may that be the root of our worship. May that be the core of why we sing. May that be why we take risk for you and follow you to the ends of the earth. Because we know you're just getting us ready for the real life to come. God, we ask these things in the righteous name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Church, let's stand. Let's sing together.